0: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Work in Intellectual History. My name is Monica Wilczynska, and I am an Intellectual History Master student at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Today I have the great pleasure to talk with Dr. Jerius uh, studies. Gerius is a professor of medieval and renaissance philosophy at the University of Athens. His research interests include the history of philosophy and Greek and Arabic philosophy. He has published extensively on these topics in academic journals and books. In fact, his latest piece, the Oxford Handbook of Dionysus, the Areopagite, was published just last week at the end of February. Today, I will ask Georges about some of his key published works, his journey as a scholar and his future projects. So hello, Georges, and thank you for for speaking with me today. Hello. Hello. So, I would like to begin the discussion by looking back at your early academic work. So, perhaps let's begin with your PhD thesis, which you completed in 2003, under the title uh, Machiavelli on Ethics and Law. So, could you tell us how that became the foundation of your academic interest, and whether some of these elements are still present in your work today?
1: During my undergraduate studies on history and archaeology, I confirmed that I had an inclination toward theory. Neither did I like research related to material evidence, nor did I feel at home when undertaking archival work. Attending courses related to ideas, I soon realized that I was attracted by the history of ideas. More particularly, I was fascinated by the medieval world. Therefore, toward the last stages of my study, I was drawn to medieval practical philosophy and its historical implications. Immediately after my military service, I began my PhD studies in philosophy at the National Kapodistrian University of Athens. The theme of my PhD thesis, as it, as it evolved throughout time, was Niccolò Machiavelli on ethics and law. In my thesis, I examined, under the perspective of ethics and metaethics, the views of Machiavelli. Till today, the interaction of history and philosophy is a Machiavellian element that I frequently use in my research.
0: Okay, wonderful answer and it's great to hear about the development of your um, of your work and your PhD and following on from that, you published several books and articles in academic journals, uh, still many regarding ethics as well as rena- Renaissance philosophy. So what is so attractive about this area and period for you?
1: Practical philosophy in general, including ethics, politics and economics, is the core of philosophy, according to my view. Philosophy is primarily an art of living and should be and should not be self referential. Philosophy is the pursuit of eudaimonia, the plenitude of life, in other words. I do not underst- underestimate the critical aspect of philosophy, but people in our days expect something more from philosophy and philosophers. Subtle notions, jargon, and technical language alienate philosophy from the people. Philosophy thrives when the core of philosophers' interest is humans and societies. We are obliged to address people's needs and problems and offer them rational thoughts and insights about everyday life. As for the Renaissance, what is fascinating about the period is the emphasis given to practical living. Renaissance scholars created a new philosophy centered on humanism, broadly conceived. They sought to revive human dignity, which serves as the basis of the modern anthropocentric ideals. Moreover, their belief that human capabilities are unlimited gave birth to the ideal of human evolution, not only ethical but also physical. As a result, Renaissance philosophy is very contemporary and has to contribute to the discussion about post humanism and transhumanism and the relation between humans and machines.
0: Mm. Okay, that's fascinating, especially a final point, humans and machines. Uh, I think this is a very important topic right now, but um, alongside your writing, you also became a lecturer in classics and first you started at the University of uh, Peloponnese and then at the National University of Athens. So I'm really curious about the role of a teacher and how this has influenced your research interest uh, as well as your general progression as a scholar in those settings.
1: At the University of Peloponnese, I taught for four years in two different departments, History and Classics. The nature and orientation of the programs in which I worked brought me closer to the history of ideas and reinforced my orientation toward the history of philosophy with an emphasis on the Middle Ages, both in Byzantium and Western Europe. In the National Kapodistrian University of Athens, my research started acquiring a more and more intense intercultural color. Being new to the department, sometimes I had to fill in the teaching needs that other, older colleagues turned down. Therefore, at some point, I had to teach a course on intercultural ethics. The preparation for this module brought me closer to the Eastern Mediterranean and Asian civilizations. More specifically, I started systematically dealing with Arabo-Islamic philosophy, which in any case formed the reception and creative evolution of ancient Greek philosophy. What is more, I came into contact with ancient Chinese philosophy, which impressed me a lot.
0: Okay, uh, that's exactly what I want to ask you more about, um, which is the fact that you contributed a significant portion of your research to Arabic philosophy in particular, and specifically to the philosopher Al-Farabi. And in fact, I believe in 2015, you received a golden jubilee medal for your research. Uh, So, please, could you introduce us to some of uh, these ideas and your findings on the topic?
1: As far as arabo islamic philosophy is concerned, my research led me to systematically deal with the work of Al-Farabi, the great philosopher of the 10th century. Since then, I have published a book in Greek on Al-Farabi's practical philosophy and a number of papers in Greek, English and French related to his philosophy. Additionally, I still teach his philosophy both at undergraduate and postgraduate levels. The purpose of my research is to highlight the reception and understanding by Al Farabi and other Arabo Islamic philosophers of the classical practical philosophy. Al Farabi succeeded in presenting an original philosophical thought in the medieval world at a time when this was rare. His practical philosophy was based on a thorough study of Plato, Aristotle, and the Neoplatonists. Al-Farabi was not only content to a simple reproduction, but he also adjusted their reflections in the medieval paradigm. Al-Farabi's practical philosophy primarily contributed to highlight the parameters of the political phenomenon that had not yet occupied the Arab and European political thought, like the primacy of philosophy over religion and the possibility of global governance by philosophers.
0: Okay, very interesting. Thank you for explaining that to us. And um, you mentioned intercultural studies and I want to ask about how Arabic philosophy can be viewed in light of Greek philosophy as well that you research.
1: Ancient Greek philosophy is not only connected with the Western civilizations, but it was frequent, ferv- fervently adopted by the Arabo Islamic world too. And through it, it had a long journey from the borders of China to the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. It is an amazing fact that while in the steppes of Khorasan, the young Al-Farabi managed to acquire a first glimpse of philosophy so that he could devote his life to it. Modern Greeks who treat the East with reservation through the lens of the Greeks' cultural excellence need to understand that cultural bonds with, with the wider Eurasian area are deep and stable. In order for this relation not to seem one-dimensional and be received as an enlightening enterprise, since modern Greeks tend to overemphasize the influence of their culture to others and undermine their cultural debts to Asian cultures, for the last couple of years, my research has acquired another dimension. I studied the reception of arabo islamic medieval philosophy by the Byzantine scholars from the 13th until and including the 16th century. My studies bring to the forefront various interesting occlusions as to how these two civilizations, medieval Greek and Arab-Islamic, interact in spite of prejudices and various difficulties concerning predominantly the lack of funding opportunities and the linguistic barrier.
0: Mm, Okay, Uh, it's interesting to find out about the the links between both cultures in in terms of philosophy. Uh, Are there any issues that you see in this field and the history of philosophy? Um, And are there other ways we could view the development of this field?
1: My research shows that the canon of the history of philosophy, as we know it, is outdated and has to change. Although we are used to refer to European philosophy, we are obliged to admit that there was a Eurasian continuum ranging from the Himalayas region to the coast of Ireland, including North Africa. After all, in the period of late antiquity and the Middle Ages, ideas used to travel much faster and farther away than the majority of scholars still believe. Civilizations such as the Indian and the Persian, that of the Magal and the Safavids, the Arabic, the Jewish, the Byzantine, the Western Latin, the Iberian, the Armenian, and others had intense interactions and were used as vehicles for the dissemination of ideas from the East to the West and reversely. Not only do goods, armies and individuals travel, but manuscripts, ideas and experiences commute with them too. The view of a world organized in delineated boxes where each culture is allegedly independent and minimally receptive to influence is quite ahistorical. Although we think that philosophical ideas mainly travel via texts, since one can single them out more easily, we have to accept the reality that first and foremost they travel through humans. Tracking down oral teaching is evidently more difficult and needs more attention in research, but cannot and should not be ignored. The fact that we do not yet possess methodological tools needed to deal with oral ways of knowledge transmission In the history of philosophy must not lead us to deny that they existed particularly in the case of the transmission of philosophical ideas broadly speaking from one culture to another oral transmission is easier and faster than translation even if inaccurate at the same time we have to admit that vast numbers of written sources remain unknown or have been lost in the course of time i am convinced that the canon of the history of philosophy as has been crystallized after the Age of Enlightenment, needs revision with an emphasis on intercultural studies, especially the view of self-contained cultures and communities since antiquity up to the 15th century forms an historical construct which is already being attacked and is in no position to offer anything fruitful to research. Within our complicated globalized environment, historians of philosophy ought to give priority to and lay emphasis on comparative study and interculturality. Even if historical, social and religious factors have their impact on the journey of philosophy in the course of time, there is a phenomenology of philosophy, certain principles that characterize every philosophical enterprise regardless of geographical coordinates, namely we should admit that philosophy is multi and consists in the thorough survey of views concerning questions on humanity and cosmos. In other words, philosophy in all cultures and eras is a conscious experience that refers to things, notions, events and their meanings. A comparative and intercultural history of philosophy aims to understand the presuppositions of the very act of philosophizing. Understanding the relations between the Western and other traditions is of paramount importance for getting into the heart of philosophical
0: thinking. Wow. Okay, it's uh, very interesting to hear about the intercultural journey of philosophy, as you put it. Uh, I put it very well. As I mentioned in the introduction as well, uh, just recently you published the Oxford Handbook of Dionysus the Areopagite, so please, could you tell us what this idea for the book came from?
1: Dionysius the Areopagite, along with Aristotle, is the most influential author during the Middle Ages, both in East and West. His views shaped philosophy and theology in multiple ways. The idea of hierarchy, so common in our world, is his contribution. Although his significance, there was no up-to-date discussion of crucial questions, including the original state of the text, and its reception throughout the centuries. This handbook contains forty essays by international team of experts on the antecedents, the content, and the reception of the Dionysian corpus, a body of writings falsely ascribed to Dionysius the Areopagite, a convert of Saint Paul, but actually written about 500 A.D. The papers which form the nucleus of this volume were delivered at a conference on the Corpus Dionysiacum at Oxford in. Uh, 200, uh, 2016. It was a condition of the funding that the proceedings should be published, but it seemed to the organisers, uh, Mr. Pallis, Professor Edwards of Oxford and me, that uh, the interest of scholarship would be better served by a more comprehensive collection of studies, embracing not only the afterlife of the corpus, but its origin and its descendants which would be suitable in quality and dimension to be published as a handbook by Oxford University Press.
0: Mm, And can you share some of the key themes and ideas of this book? Uh, What could readers expect to find in this piece?
1: The The success of the Dionysian writings is all the more remarkable. The text became the teacher, the mouthpiece of philosophers, ascetics, and contemplatives, bishops and scholars, Platonist, Hegelian, and postmodernist. Without the corpus Dionysiacum, there would have been no Maximus the Confessor, no Eriugena, no Aquinas, no Ficino, and no Cusanus, as we know them. The pejorative label, Pseudo-Dionysius, belies his place in history, for there are no authentic writings by this disciple for which his lubrications need to be distinguished. We do not speak of pseudo-Homer, and we followed the practice of most contemporary specialists in dispensing with the prefix. The name of Dionysius synonymous with a single body of literature, just as the name of Homer, is synonymous with the Iliad and Odyssey. His text, like that of Homer, is protean, and like Homer, he grows in stature with every new appropriation. All the more so, the more the appropriation departs from what we now suppose to have been his intent. And just as it would have been citing to call him pseudo-Dionysius, so it would have been needlessly pedantic to call this a volume on the reception of his writings. It is indeed so, for the most part, by this is surely a case in which the reception is the man.
0: Okay, wow, that's definitely... uh very exciting and interesting to read about. So I would like to ask you about what is the typical approach and methodology that you prefer to undertake when you're writing?
1: I follow some very basic rules. First of all, I respect the original text and the wider historical context within which the text was produced. Then I ask myself why the text cares so as to avoid anachronism. Then I focus on the terminology attempting to trace possible conceptual shifts. Besides explicit arguments, I try to spot questions that the author omitted or avoided to pose an answer. Last but not least, since I support that philosophical material is not philosophical because of where it appears, but because it is philosophically, philosophically interesting, I expand my research to figures and movements that do not necessarily seem philosophical in our modern sense.
0: Mm, okay, well it's definitely quite challenging to, to figure out the questions that they omitted uh, but definitely successful in this book. So for my final question I would like to ask you uh, about the projects that you're working on at the moment and perhaps what is next?
1: My present research has to do with the way of engaging ancient Greek philosophy in the Italian Renaissance. Namely, I aim to highlight the degree with which 15th century philosophy is influenced by the pre-Socratics. In addition, I try to clarify the ways early modern politics were influenced by apocryphal texts and occult sciences, forming what I call political theosophy. Furthermore, I have launched a research concerning the use of arabo Islamic and Hebrew philosophy by Byzantine philosophers and theologians from the 14th to the 15th century mainly. Although the two areas, Arab Islamic and Byzantine, were near each other for many centuries, the influence of the former on Byzantine tradition has not been studied yet thoroughly. In addition, while Jewish communities flourished in the Greek speaking regions of the Eastern Mediterranean and several Jewish scholars studied philosophy, there is a lacuna in the field and my research is focused mainly on these directions.
0: Okay, fantastic. I'm sure we will all look forward to the research that comes out from, from this study. Uh, I would like to thank you so much for taking the time for this interview. One thing that uh, has stayed with me is how you uh, phrase that philosophy for you is an art of living and it's very intercultural. So thank you for that. Uh, and we'll look forward to future research.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you.